0: Well, unlike, I'm sure, many of you, I haven't done much traveling in my life. I didn't have a passport until Meredith forced me to get one after we got married. Pretty sure it expired at some point early in the pandemic, and now I need to get myself a new valid one. I have seen quite a bit of the West Coast of the United States, always by car, between childhood and our early married years when we would go up and down the coast of California to San Francisco. Outside of that, though, not too much traveling. Maybe someday. Which means I can be confident that I, for one, bear no responsibility for the reputation we Americans have when we travel internationally. There's even a name for it, the ugly American. Now, I am sure that none of you have played into that stereotype, but yet it's out there because enough of our country men and women, country folk, country people, whichever, enough of them have contributed to this trope that we're kind of stuck with it. What's interesting about this for our purposes here today is that this stereotype has come about not because of some generic rudeness or unculturedness. Instead, it's largely come because Americans, unlike many other nationalities, seem to have this expectation that the rest of the world ought to operate like the United States. There's a unique or close to unique arrogance about Americans that even when we are in a place halfway around the world, we expect things to basically be just like home that they should speak our language, follow our customs, do things our way. I mean, our way is the right way, isn't it? Meredith has been rewatching Parks and Rec recently, and just the other day, (laughs) the episode was on where Ron Swanson tries to buy something in London with an American dollar bill and then is offended that the most beautiful piece of paper in the world is not accepted as payment. But that expectation creates this mismatch that results in the ugly American because acting like you are in Chicago when you're actually in Turin or Lima or Nairobi or Bangkok, it just isn't going to work very well. At best, it's rude. At worst, it can be dangerous. And this is all going to make a good analogy for us as we approach one of Paul's main points in Romans chapter six to eight. He begins chapter six saying this. What are we to say then? Shall we continue in the state of sin so that grace may increase? Certainly not. We died to sin. How can we still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into the Messiah Jesus were baptized into his death? That means that we were buried with him through baptism into death so that, just as the Messiah was raised from the dead through the Father's glory, we too might behave with a new quality of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul's talking about moving to a new state of being rather than a new country, but his point is largely the same. You don't live there anymore. You live here. So you need to take that change into account when it comes to how you live in the world. For Paul, the two places people might live are in sin and in Jesus. And it kind of is like two different countries. In fact, for the rest of our time here, when I say in sin, I want you to think of it almost as if I were saying in France. If you think back to the opening chapters of this book of Romans, Paul sees sin as not so much our individual bad choices, as a whole system of being in the world that almost seems like a competing power demanding our allegiance. Sin is the system, the way the world works, the way of being that tells us to just go along with it because there isn't really any alternative. And Paul wants the Romans to wake up and leave that all behind. The idea of living in sin at some point got collapsed to just meaning having sex with people you shouldn't on a regular basis. But Paul has a much, much broader view here. Living in sin is any way of being in the world that is contrary to the character of God. Living in sin is any way of being in the world that is contrary to the character of God. Living in ways that are oppressive and unjust, especially to the vulnerable when God is a God of justice and equity. Living in ways that are violent and hostile when Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Living in ways that are greedy and self-serving when Jesus gave himself away for the sake of others. Living in ways that are based on an assumption of scarcity where I have to hoard what's mine when God is a God of abundance. Living in ways that are cynical and mean when ours is a joyful God. Living in ways that treat other people or creation as objects to be exploited when God dreams of the flourishing of all things. Living in ways that are ugly and stingy when God generously made the world to be extravagantly beautiful. Living as if we just have to look out for ourselves and our interests when our God is Trinity, a relational community sort of God. Living afraid when our God can be trusted. Living in sin when God is a God of life. These ways of being in the world are persuasive and pervasive. We see them all around us every day, and it's easy to just go along with them. But for Paul, that's essentially to be the ugly American, living in Lima as if you were in Denver, because we don't live in sin anymore. And the image Paul uses to explain this in these verses is baptism. When you were baptized, Paul says, you went under the water and then came back up. You died and then rose just like Jesus. In fact, in some mysterious way, when you put your trust in Jesus, what is true of him becomes true of you. Just as Jesus died, you died. Just as Jesus rose, you rose. And the result, Paul says in verses four and five, is that you might have a new quality of life, a life lived in the likeness of Jesus's resurrection. And then he goes on. This is what we know. Our old humanity was crucified with the Messiah so that the solidarity of sin might be abolished and that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. A person who has died, you see, has been declared free from all charges of sin. But if we died with the Messiah, we believe that we shall live with him. We know that the Messiah, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has any authority over him. That death he died, you see, he died to sin once and only once but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, you too must calculate yourselves as being dead to sin and alive to God and the Messiah, Jesus. This reality that in baptism we have immigrated to a new country, gone from being in sin to being in Jesus, this reality has some crucial implications for Paul. They show up here in these verses and then all the way through the rest of chapters six to eight. And so we're going to look at those chapters kind of as a whole here, and we're going to look at a few of the things that Paul says in the chapters, but not all of them, because he kind of keeps circling around these same ideas in different ways. I get into things more comprehensively on our Backdrop podcasts, if you're interested in a deeper dive on that. For the sermons, this week, we're going to look at the implications this has on the sin side of the equation, and then next week, Meredith is going to look at the new life side of the equation. And I use equation as my metaphor here because Paul does too. Calculate yourselves as being dead to sin, he says. Add up the sum. See what the equation gives you. Because just as two plus two equals four, the implications of having died and risen alongside Jesus are just as assured. I want to look at two of those implications in these chapters that have to do with the sin side of things. First is what we see in verse six. Our old humanity was crucified with the Messiah so that the solidarity of sin might be abolished and that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. And then skipping a couple verses down, death no longer has any authority over him. For Paul, the first implication of all of this is that we are free. Sin and death have no authority over us anymore. In other words, unlike all the people who live as if they have no choice but to go along with the way the world works, we are free to live a different story. The power of sin is like the power of Pharaoh in the Exodus story, who could command the Israelites to make as many bricks in whichever way he pleased. They were his slaves. They had no choice. But then God set them free, ransomed them so that they belonged to Yahweh, not Pharaoh. And Pharaoh no longer had any authority. Pharaoh could try to command them to show up at the brick factory at sunrise, just like the old days, but the old days were gone. They were free. They had no obligation to show up for work. We are a people who have been freed from the old days, from the way the world works, from the greed and violence, the oppression and selfishness, the tribalism and deceit, the individualism and exploitation, the anxiety and fear, the hustle and desperation. Those things had power over us once, but they don't any longer. We belong to Jesus now. And Jesus gives us a new, better, more life-giving way. We don't have to live that way anymore. We don't have to listen to what sin tells us about how to live. One of the many things that comes to mind for me is the way that starting in college and pretty much ever since, the standard answer to how's it going for many of my friends and acquaintances has been, oh, busy. The reasons for that answer have shifted from studying and extracurricular activities in college to work to kids and family obligations as we've gotten older, but oh, busy, has remained. And not in a, I'm running myself ragged, but wish I weren't, and I'm making changes in my life so that it could become more joyful and sustainable kind of way. No, more in a, I'm running myself ragged because that's what makes my life meaningful, right? That's the way people like us are supposed to live, right? That's how everyone else around me lives, so it must be the way to life, right? When we live in the country of sin, that is the sort of unspoken logic that enslaves us. But Paul says, you don't live in sin anymore. You live in Jesus. You are free from the self-destructive logic of how the world works because you don't live in that world anymore. He goes on in verse 12. So don't allow sin to rule in your mortal body to make you obey its desires. Nor should you present your limbs and organs, your parts of your body, to sin to be used for its wicked purposes. Rather, present yourselves to God as people alive from the dead, and your limbs and organs to God, to be used for the righteous purposes of his covenant. Sin won't actually rule over you, you see, since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul has to keep reminding the Romans, because the old days, they keep calling us back. And this new freedom can be scary. What if we're wrong? What if it really was better back then the old way? In the Exodus story, the people are barely out of Egypt when they start saying what sounds completely idiotic to us. Maybe things were better when we were slaves. Maybe we should just go back. There are points in the story when they aren't so sure they can trust this God who tells them they are free. They wonder if maybe they should go back to the brick factories and show up for work. Maybe that is the way to live. Paul is saying that being a Christian means having been a part of Jesus' death and resurrection which means going back to live lives of greed and exploitation and desperation and violence and all the rest is as illogical as being an Israelite who goes back to make bricks. It's like living in Turin as if you were still in Los Angeles. You don't live there anymore. You live here. You don't have to do it that way anymore. In fact, it would be silly to do so. You are free. And this brings us to the second implication for Paul of the reality that we've died with Jesus and been raised, and it's most clearly stated in chapter eight. So let's jump ahead here, Romans 8, starting in verse one. "So, therefore, there is no condemnation for those in the Messiah Jesus. Why not? Because the law of the Spirit, the one who gives life in the Messiah, released you from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, being weak because of human flesh, was incapable of doing. God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. And right there in the flesh, he condemned sin. This was in order that the right and proper verdict of the law could be fulfilled in us as we live, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is no condemnation. This is one of Paul's main points in this whole section of the letter, that those who are in Jesus are free to experience the life of God's kingdom, the characteristics of which we talked about a couple weeks ago, and that they can be assured that freedom is not going to be taken away from them. Paul has his eye on future condemnation, what some might call the final judgment, but he also has one eye on the present because really these two implications that we are free and that there is no condemnation, they are two sides of the same coin while Paul does mean there is no ultimate condemnation for those who follow Jesus, the Messiah, that we will ultimately live in the world made new with him forever. He also means that we aren't condemned to live in sin any longer. See, the problem with living in sin is not just that God doesn't like it and so is going to punish us for our mistakes. The problem is that living in sin sucks. Both in the slang sense of, oh, this sucks, but also in the sense that living in that way sucks the life out of us, sucks the joy out of us, sucks the peace out of us, and out of the world around us. I thought these verses from back in chapter 6 were interesting. So let's jump back to 6, verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you see, You were free in respect of covenant justice. You didn't have to do what God said. What fruit did you ever have from the things of which you are now ashamed? Their destination is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and enslaved to God, you have fruit for holiness. Its destination is the life of the age to come. The wages paid by sin you see are death, but God's free gift is the life of the age to come in the Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. What fruit did you ever have from living in the old ways? All those things bring is death. The hustle of work and achievement promise fulfillment, but they just suck the life out of you. Sometimes quite literally as our bodies and minds wear down from the relentless grind. As big a house in as nice a neighborhood as possible with all the latest and greatest things in it, including whichever hard surface countertops are currently trendy, they promise comfort your own private oasis from the parched earth outside or whatever it is those home renovation shows say but it comes with the anxiety of a bigger mortgage payment coming due each month which dictates the type of employment we need what we can do with our time it constrains our ability to be generous cheap energy produced by burning oil and coal and whatever else will burn promised the ability to sit in comfort in our homes, no matter the outside temperature, to buy more cheaper stuff shipped from wherever in the world, to travel further and more often. But the costs are becoming more apparent with each fire and flood, each storm and drought, each extinction. Almost 200,000 people in the United States die prematurely each year because of pollution, disproportionately the poor and people of color. And the number is likely around 10 million worldwide annually. The wages of sin are death. I read an article a couple weeks back about a guy in Kentucky who spent millions of dollars building the most secure house that he could. This is all true, by the way. It had security cameras everywhere, reinforced everything, an arsenal of firearms, massive walls around the property, and underground, a multi-million dollar, 2,000 square foot bunker with three foot thick walls and ceiling. Air filtration system, escape tunnels, and enough food to wait out whatever dangers might lurk outside. The article says he thought he had prepared for whatever catastrophes might come, diligently constructing a place that would guarantee his family's safety. Enough money, concrete, technology, and guns will protect me. This is the logic of living in sin. This is what idolatry looks like. And like all idols, these ones failed. Earlier this year, a different man, stranger, was convinced in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine that nuclear war was imminent. He became desperate to have access to a bunker in order to wait out the nuclear fallout. He identified somehow this particular house as a target, spent weeks observing it, and then one night broke in with an assault rifle, killed the man's daughter, injured him, and then fled when the man started shooting back. And so now, The man has sold the house, the one that failed to protect him like all idols do, and he, his wife, and his one remaining daughter are living in an RV so that they can keep on the move off the grid. Maybe that's the way to guarantee safety. The wages paid by sin are death. This is an extreme example. It's true. But even so, it encapsulates what it means to live in sin, to be enslaved to the logic of the world around us, thinking that you're pursuing life, but finding only death at the end of the day. But we don't live in sin. We live in Jesus. We have died with him and now we have been raised to experience resurrection life alongside him. Add it up. See what's true. Sin has no power over us anymore. No authority. We don't have to show up to work at the brick factory anymore. We aren't condemned to slavery. In fact, Paul makes clear the only thing condemned is sin itself. In chapter eight, verse three, again, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. And right there in the flesh, he condemned sin. Not God condemned Jesus. God condemned sin. To quote the movie Luca, which we just watched in our house this week. So long, evil empire of injustice. Add it up. See what's true. Sin has been condemned We are free from its ways and its logic. So Paul says, live like you're free because that's what this all adds up to. In our time together, we moved from there to a time of response using, as we often do, a spiritual practice that has a long history in the Christian tradition. Now, in the wide world of life-giving spiritual practices, confession probably is not the first one that comes to your mind. Depending on your background, it might bring up sitting in a little room with a priest on the other side of a screen or sound like something a criminal would do. Or it might bring up memories of self flagellation while the worship band played up on stage. I think there's a better definition of confession. Confession is reminding ourselves of what's true and then living like it. Confession is reminding ourselves of what's true and then living like it. In a world that's full of people living in sin, in the sense that we've been talking about living according to the logic and ways of sin. It's natural for us to start thinking that maybe we're the ones who have it wrong. Those ways the world work are both pervasive and persuasive. And sometimes like Paul encourages us to do in these chapters, we need to add things up and check our math a little. Wait, does this way of thinking and living lead to life life for me, for the people around me, for the world? Or does it lead to fear and injustice and selfishness and death? And if it's the latter, then wait, I don't have to live that way anymore. Sin doesn't have the authority. I'm not a slave. I'm free. And confession is a tool for reminding us of all those things. So what we did is we took a piece of paper and something to write on, and we took a few minutes to reflect. Reflect on the life that we're living now and on this question, what patterns of thought or action have you been participating in that are contrary to God's character? What patterns of thought or action have you been participating in that are contrary to God's character? This might be things that align with some of the examples I already sketched out to repeat myself from a few minutes ago, living in ways that are oppressive and unjust, especially to the vulnerable when God is a God of justice and equity, living in ways that are violent and hostile when Jesus is the Prince of Peace living in ways that are greedy and self-serving when Jesus gave himself away for the sake of others, living in ways that are based on an assumption of scarcity where I have to hoard what's mine when God is a God of abundance, living in ways that are cynical and mean when ours is a joyful God, living in ways that treat other people or creation as objects to be exploited when God dreams of the flourishing of all things, living in ways that are ugly and stingy when God generously made the world to be extravagantly beautiful. And on and on. And so I invite you to reflect on the question and then write things down in a column, like you're doing an addition problem, with each thing on its own line with a plus sign. So take a few minutes, jot down your confession, not as a self flagellation exercise, but as a reminder that those things don't add up to life. And then once you've done that, I would invite you to draw a line at the bottom, like you're about to add it all up. And then where the sum would go under the line, I want you to write death, death, because that's what Paul would say, that these things, these patterns of thought and action add up to, they don't produce fruit, only death. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of what's true and then go a different way, a way that leads to life for us and for the world as a whole. God, we confess that we have forgotten what is true that we have lived and thought in ways that are contrary to who you are and to what you hope will be true in our lives and in the world. We have been selfish, hurried, violent, hateful, stingy, fearful, greedy, and all the rest. We have forgotten that you have set us free from those things so that we might experience the life that you offer through Jesus. God remind us what is true and through your spirit, empower us to repent, to turn away. From these patterns and to turn towards the life you offer us instead. Thank you for your grace, not only to forgive, but to lead us into life. May we have the courage to walk in that life. Amen.